Welcome to 10-Minute Theology, thinking rightly about God, scriptures, and the church. 10 minutes at a time, with Joel Wentz. So here we are, back in this Reading and Respecting Scriptures series, in which I'm trying to step through ancient Jewish holy texts, starting with specifically what we know as the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, in the Christian Bible. My goal is to treat these texts just as seriously as any person would treat a serious work of philosophy, history, theology, etc. Trying to unpack themes and ideas that I think are worthy of our respect, even as modern or postmodern readers, even today. So, this episode is picking up immediately after the last one, in which we are partway through the third chapter of Genesis. We talked a lot about the interaction between the clever, crafty serpent and the humans in uh, the last episode, and we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of that and see what happens next. That's really the focus of this next episode. And this, again, this is arguably one of the most famous certainly top five biblical scenes in general. The story of Adam and Eve is just permeates kind of what we understand culturally. So it takes a lot of diligence to unpack new things or to see it afresh, but that's what I want to try to do. So what has happened is the serpent, the clever agent of chaos, has been successful in working at eroding the trusting relationship between humans and God. And the humans have given in. They reached for the knowledge of good and evil. They reached to define the parameters of good and evil for themselves. And now we get to see God's response. But before diving into what the text says too fast, just pause for a second and think, how would you expect a response to look at this point? If imagining yourself as God feels too weird, try to remember these are ancient stories. If you had to guess how an ancient society would recount their creation story and their gods, how would you guess they might portray the ultimate creator, the ultimate divine response? To the first transgression of divine law. How would they re- how would you guess that response would look? Well, if you guessed softly and graciously, <laughs> I would presume you haven't read too much ancient literature. But here we get a glimpse of how the ancient Hebrews wrote about their God. First, God is surprisingly gentle. In verses 8 to 13, we simply see God, quote, walking through the garden. And even though the human humans hide from God, God still invites conversation with them. Remember that this is God we are talking about. This is the ultimate, highest, divine being that we are talking about. It's silly to think that God, quote, didn't know what was going on or something like that. Yet, this God, this creator, invites the humans, the creation, to interact and even to confess what happened. There's no smiting. There's no lightning bolts. There's no heavenly wrath that falls down swift and furiously, but just a simple, even kind of heartbreaking question, where are you? The humans admit their fear, they know that they broke a rule, (laughs) so to speak, and right away, we get another, I think, wise glimpse into human interactions and even psychology. I kind of hinted at this at the end of the last episode, but it's worth repeating here, because the story once again captures a really painful and relatable human struggle, which is the desire to shift blame and to justify the self's actions immediately. This is all captured in the litany of blaming that cascades down through verses 10 to 14. The man blames the woman, and he even throws kind of a slight blow to God. God's own self saying, you gave me this woman. Side note, this is a great opportunity for some smiting action, right? (laughs) There's a little bit of shade thrown at God right away. But 
but God's hand has stayed. And actually, as another side note, it speaks to the human confidence to even kind of respond boldly to God. It's just, it's very, very stark. It's very interesting. But what happens after the man says this? The woman immediately blames the clever serpent. No one takes any responsibility for what has happened. We, we refuse to do that. And before moving on too fast, this whole scene so evidently looks like it happens between a parent and children, right? You can imagine a pair of kids who knew they did something wrong while dad was away. They hide in the house when they hear dad coming through the front door. I might be projecting my own experience here. I don't know. Uh, Then the dad, the father, knows something is off. And as a good father, invites their confession, which the kids kind of give in response, but then immediately try to shift blame to each other. I mean, who cannot relate to that whole dynamic? Whether or not you have siblings, it could be with friends, it could be with extended family or co-workers even. I mean, we do this all through our lives. We just, as humans and as adults, we get just slightly more sophisticated with our language and with hiding it. But the fundamental impulse to shift blame, to refuse responsibility, especially when we know we were complicit in something that went wrong, I mean, that never totally goes away, right? So who cannot relate to this whole scene? It's actually kind of uncanny, and I think it's amazing how much, again, is packed into a few lines of dialogue here and back and forth. And before moving quickly into the famous or maybe infamous curse of Genesis, which we are going to talk about, needs needs a lot of conversation, actually, it's really important before we see that text to emphasize the really gentle and surprising gracious response of God's interactions with the humans here. Because honestly, I'm a Christian, so I, you know, I subscribe a lot of authority to these texts. But really, I don't want to come off as defensive here, but I think God gets a bad rap in this story. I really think that's the case. I get into conversations with, I do college ministry, and I get into conversations with students about this pretty regularly, especially the Genesis God, the God of the Old Testament, you know, all of those things. But if you've ever read, especially any of the Greek epics, which is kind of what I'm a little bit more familiar with, things like the Iliad or the Odyssey, try to imagine Zeus or Ares or some other a figure like that acting in the way God acts in this story. There's no way. You do not see that. I mean, God is incredibly patient already in these first couple pages with what is clearly humans who are not following and not trusting and then trying to blame each other and trying to shift blame around and trying to justify themselves quickly. It just is very startling in its contrast to how other um, stories play out, especially stories of the time. There are so many interactions just in these few lines where you would expect swift and final punishment from God's hand, and it simply it just doesn't happen. Instead, we get a portrayal of a creator who listens to the created, who listens to the children, so to speak. And as I read it with this idea in mind, I can actually kind of feel God's heart, so to speak, breaking for them. You can almost feel God saying, I gave you so much. I gave you my own image which came with it, uh, you know, good stewardship and good dominion and, and agency to act. And you even had my authority to take care of this place that I created for you. I protected your freedom because you had a genuine choice here. You could have trusted me, the one who gave you life. You could have trusted that my rules were good and for your flourishing in this place. And that's what I wanted for you, was flourishing. As a side note, as a person of faith now, I think that is what God wants for us today, is flourishing. You can picture God saying this to them, and could have, you can picture God sighing and saying, this could have been so good, 
and so beautiful. But now, now unfortunately, it's not going to be that way. And I think that idea is profound. That this could have been so good with built on trust, built on the bedrock of trust and love and give and take in relationship. This could have been so good. Trusting that the knowledge of good and evil is not ours to grasp and to wrest out of the universe and to demand understanding and to demand knowledge and maturity in before we're ready for it. To trust that that is actually the way to life could have been good and beautiful. So whether or not you believe in a metaphysical god or divine beings or what you think about this whole story, especially as it interacts with modern science and all of those other questions, I just want you to park all that to the side and meditate on this idea because I hope you can see the beauty that I see there. Thanks for listening. For more information, you can check out the podcast page at joelwentz.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joel the Valiant, and of course, you can subscribe to 10 Minute Theology on iTunes. Take care.